Good, okay. Well, a very warm welcome to the uh, final meeting this calendar year of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure to introduce Jens Timmerman, who will be speaking this evening. Um, Jens, as I'm sure you all know, is reader in moral philosophy at the University of St. Andrews. He's got a background in ancient philosophy, but he's particularly well known for a wonderful body of work on Kant, and especially on various aspects of Kant's practical philosophy. And I really do mean various. There's scarcely any aspect of Kant's practical philosophy on which he hasn't made a significant contribution. Uh, this evening's uh, session will follow the, the usual format. Jens will speak for about 45 minutes or so. There will then be a five-minute break for tea or coffee, and then a question and answer session, and we shall aim to finish around 7.15 p.m. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Jens, whose title this evening is What's Wrong with Deontology? And I think the inverted commas around deontology will turn out to be very important. Well, thank you very much, um, Adrian. Uh, and yes, the inverted commas uh, are important because I've had the suspicion for a long, long time that there's something just wrong with the term deontology. And as a Kantian, of course, I was familiar with the warning in the first critique that some concepts, as Kant says, are usurped concepts. He mentions uh, terms such as fortune uh, and fate, which, quote, run about with almost universal indulgence, unquote. Sometimes, however, the question arises whether they can be legitimately employed at all. And then, and again I quote, there is not a little embarrassment as one can cite no clear legal ground, either from experience or from reason, to manifest the entitlement to their use." Unquote. Now, Kant's worry uh, is, of course, that the pure concepts of the understanding are no better off than concepts like fortune and fate, um, that is, the categories. And that is why, in the first critique, he goes into twice, actually, in 81 and 87, the transcendental deduction of the categories to show that we are right and justified in using those terms. Now, the problem with deontology is different from uh, the problem with fortune and fate, or cause for that matter, because I suppose fortune and fate are at least comparatively well defined. We know what it would be like to be at the wrong end of fortune, but the problem with deontology uh, is, it seems to me, that it's just very, very ill-defined, it's ambiguous, it's confused, and it is really rather useless. And this matters in moral philosophy uh, because it may lead to uh, our asking uh, the wrong questions uh, and uh, leaving the right questions unasked. Um, I uh, will, in what follows, uh, talk a bit about uh, the history of the word deontology, uh, say what it can mean, and say also a tiny bit about uh, whether Kant uh, should be called a deontologist, as of course uh, quite often um, he is. Turning to um, the history of the word, um, some of you may know that the word was invented by Jeremy Bentham. Uh, it's not a Greek word proper. 
It was invented uh, by Bentham almost exactly 200 years ago, uh, round about August 1814. And there is, in fact, a book called Deontology, published posthumously in 1834, in which Bentham discusses the virtues and vices of a good utilitarian agent. He used the word, he coined the word, um, using uh, the two um, elements, uh, namely, first of all, uh, the word, the Greek word for uh, what is proper, or what ought to be done, todeon, and then the usual suffix that we're familiar with for the doctrine, science, or study of a thing, uh, as in biology, and so on. So if you put the two together, you get uh, deontology. And the meaning, as you might expect, is first and foremost just the science or doctrine of duty or the branch of knowledge which deals with moral obligations, in other words, ethics. And if you look at your handout under Ray, you see that the OED defines deontology in precisely those terms, uh, quoting uh, Bentham and some other people, um, including uh, Gladstone, a system of that which ought to be done, uh, and uh, a term called medical deontology, that is the duties and rights of medical practitioners. There is no trace in the OED of our modern philosophical meaning or bunch of meanings, neither in the OED 2, uh, which is, of course, the print version, nor in the online OED 3, and that's because uh, the OED, uh, the editors haven't yet revised the entry uh, on deontology. Um, that uh, hopefully will be done at some point. Uh, I sent them a note saying your entry on deontology uh, needs to be revised, and here are a couple of suggestions for further reading. Now, the one thing that's really funny about this is that lexicographers tend to go to the OED for information quite a lot. So if you look at your standard desktop dictionary, and I think I looked at, well, all the dictionaries at least that I could easily find, this basic literal sense, the Bentamite sense, the study or doctrine of duty, roughly ethics, is the sense that you'll find in standard desktop dictionaries, not just Oxford dictionaries, also American dictionaries, Collins, and so on and so forth. So you could be forgiven if you just turn to your standard dictionary for thinking that this is the basic meaning of deontology, um, namely a system uh, or the study uh, of uh, duty. And um, of course, in this sense, it seems to me the word deontology is innocent enough as long as we bear in mind that it says nothing about the substance or the foundation of duty. Uh, Bentham proposed his own utilitarian deontology and this deontology now competes for attention with the deontologies of Kant, Ross, Scanlon, and perhaps even questionably Aristotle. Uh, any ethical system that contains concrete action prescriptions is deontological in this broad, literal, and original sense. Now, nowadays, Bentham's definition is, of course, virtually unknown outside lexicographical circles. When modern moral philosophers speak about deontology, they tend to have something different in mind. 
uh, namely a style of ethical theory that is not teleological or consequentialist. So that's uh, the modern sense that I turn to now. It seems that the dictionary definition had been largely forgotten when C.D. Broad reintroduced deontological in his five types of ethical theory in 1930. It is at that point that the word began to develop its distinctly modern flavor. Broad was unhappy with Sidgwick's three methods of ethics, intuitionism, egoistic hedonism, and utilitarianism, the division seemed to him to conflate the epistemological issue of how we cognize what to do with another broadly metaphysical question, whether actions are intrinsically right or wrong, or whether their status depends on, quote, their conduciveness to certain ends, unquote. The word used in the late 19th century to characterize results-oriented theories, like utilitarianism, was teleology, literally the study system or doctrine of ends. The paradigmatic teleological theory was utilitarianism, that is, the theory that revolves around promoting universal happiness. Broad felt the need for another ology to contrast with such doctrines of good ends, and once again he turned to uh, the Greek. Uh, he used the word closest in meaning to duty or obligation, dodeon, so uh, deontology uh, was duly uh, reinvented. Accordingly, uh, Broad proposes an initial division of ethical theories into two classes, deontological and uh, teleological. And I should say that I use, which I think is historically roughly uh, correct, uh, teleology uh, in the sense of consequentialism. So I think in those days, people, what we call today consequentialism, was called uh, teleology, and I shall not distinguish between the two. Of course, today there may well be uh, a difference between uh, teleology uh, and consequentialism, but I shall not address that issue. Now, the most important quotation is once again on your handout, and it's B. So this is uh, Broad's five types. Quote, deontological theories hold that there are ethical propositions of the form, such and such a kind of action would always be right or wrong in such and such circumstances, no matter what its consequences might be. Teleological theories hold that the rightness or wrongness of an action is always determined by its tendency to produce certain consequences which are intrinsically good or bad. Now, Broad's distinction is, I think, both more subtle and less ambitious than contemporary textbook versions of the teleology-deontology divide. There are several things interesting about uh, this passage and generally about what he says about uh, his new distinction. The first is that Broad presents the deontology-teleology distinction as just one dimension of ethical theories, according to which they are to be classified. He explicitly brackets epistemological concerns, and there is no suggestion that he would approve of the textbook attempt to use the distinction as the fundamental classificatory principle of ethical theories. I mean, the book is called Five Types of Ethical Theory, not Two Types um, of Ethical Theory. Secondly, Broad's definition stands apart from those of later generations of moral philosophers in that deontology is 
up to a point at least defined positively in terms of the intrinsic rightness of actions. I say up to a point because there remains the question of what makes an action intrinsically right. The label refers to first order moral judgments, not to their grounds. Broad does not burden the distinction with these issues at this stage, but then again, he is not claiming that the distinction should serve as the sole classificatory standard of ethical theories. Third thing to note about Broad's distinction is that he does not think that all, or indeed many, ethical theories fall squarely into the deontological or the teleological camp. First appearances notwithstanding. At the end of his discussion, he issues the following warning, and that is C on the handout. He says, we must remember, however, that purely deontological and purely teleological theories are rather ideal limits than real existence. Most actual theories are mixed, some being predominantly deontological and other predominantly teleological. Um, and his example for a mixed theory um, is Sidgwick. Uh, again, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the discussion occurs in uh, the Sidgwick chapter. The reason is that Sidgwick uh, recognized uh, principles of just distribution that do not have a consequentialist or teleological foundation. Of course, there's also the issue of the dualism of practical reason. He can't quite make up his mind uh, whether egoism or utilitarianism in the end uh, is right, but the primary reason is that there are non-teleological principles um, in uh, Sidgwick, so not even Sidgwick uh, was uh, a proper teleologist. Uh, there were mixed elements in his theory. The fourth and final point uh, to note is that it's not clear from what Broad says whether he wants deontological rules to be inviolable or absolute. And that's a feature that is often associated with deontological theories today. His definition as such may seem to point in this direction. Um, he talks about right and wrong, but the question is whether right and wrong are to be taken in uh, an all things considered uh, sense. That is, whether if an action is wrong, that really does mean that I uh, shouldn't uh, do it, uh, i.e. we need to exclude conflicts of obligations or conflicts of rules to be confident that uh, something falling under a rule really does make it wrong in the all things considered sense. And I just don't know whether he wanted um, his sense of deontology to convey uh, this idea of absolutism. And I'll say a bit more about that later on. Leaving broad behind and Moving forward in the history of philosophy a bit, uh, we turn to um, Frankener, uh, and that is quotation D um, on your handout. And that is when, it seems to me, the teleology, deontology split had become something like a textbook distinction and students were writing down in their notebooks, something like all theories are either deontological or teleological. Those students who later became lecturers and professors themselves and taught this uh, in lectures and seminars, uh, which is uh, unfortunate. So let's have a look at what Frankener says. Frankener, 
and I read this in full because it's really very interesting, says, deontological theories deny what teleological theories affirm. They deny that the right, the obligatory, and the morally good are wholly, whether directly or indirectly, a function of what is non-morally good or of what promotes the greatest balance of good or evil for self, one society, or the world as a whole. They assert that there are other considerations that may make an action or rule right or obligatory besides the goodness or badness of its consequences, certain features of the act itself other than the value it brings into existence. For example, the fact that it keeps a promise is just or is commanded by God or by the state, sentences of Kantian proportions. Now, the crucial feature of Frankener's account is that it is purely negative. We learn from his definition what deontology is not, what it denies, um, namely that for assessing right and wrong, it relies on considerations other than the action's consequences. Uh, the definition is, is incredibly convoluted, uh, it's vague, there are eight occurrences of the word or in about as many lines. And Frankenau does not tell us of any characteristics that make deontological theories what they are. They are said to be, there are said to be certain features that render an, uh, an action right, but we're left wondering what exactly these features might be. Instead of an account of the right or wrong making features of deontological commands, we are presented with a list of um, examples, and I don't think this really uh, inspires confidence. So my thesis about deontology is really that the problem is uh, its negative definition. We uh, just know that deontology is supposed to be different from, in some shape or form, uh, teleology or consequentialism, but that doesn't make it a terribly useful philosophical term. And this negative nature uh, is shared, um, the authority shares this feature uh, with many other words of equally debatable um, utility. And some nice examples, if you turn to the second page of the handout from uh, Dr. Johnson's dictionary, uh, the most useful one may be the word uh, foreigner, uh, a man who comes from another country, or not a native, both negative uh, definitions. We learn, unsurprisingly, nothing about foreigners in and of themselves, because both glosses are purely negative. Johnson just tells us what a foreigner um, is not. Now, this as such does not render the term useless altogether. If you take up the point of view of an official, say, government minister, um, it makes good sense. So, for example, if the Home Secretary were to announce that foreigners resident in the UK uh, were to be given the vote uh, in general elections, I would be delighted. I wouldn't send her a letter to say that she uses the word foreigner in a vague or ill-defined kind um, of way. So that's fine, it seems to me, from the point of view of a sovereign state, some people are foreigners, and if you say things like, um, I, uh, foreigners uh, should be given the vote, 
uh, that makes uh, very good sense. But we can easily uh, think of other uses of the word foreigner that are problematic. If we blame uh, crime on foreigners, that's not very nice, of course, uh, because it basically says that citizens are innocent and everybody who's not a citizen uh, might not be. And uh, on a less serious note, if a geographer were to say that there are exactly two kinds of human being on this planet, namely UK nationals and foreigners, we would find that rather funny. But I think that's exactly uh, what philosophers do when they say that all ethical theories are either teleological or deontological, because there's just nothing that uh, foreigners from a UK perspective share that would make them a coherent and interesting category. There's a very nice example if you look at uh, Dr. Johnson's dictionary definitions, again, uh, from Addison uh, about punch. That's the last uh, three lines or so. Um, Addison says, water is the only native of England made, to made use of in punch, but the lemons, the brandy, the sugar, and the nutmegs are all foreigners. Now, lemons, brandy, sugar, and nutmeg do not have all that much in common, but they're foreigners. Um, and there are other examples. One example, uh, I was reminded doing this of uh, Bernard Williams, who was very fond of saying that the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy uh, wasn't really uh, all that great because it involves the quite bizarre conflation of the methodological and the topological as though one classified cars into front wheel drive and Japanese. Um, it's, I think, ironic that some departments call themselves continental departments because continental philosophers have in common that certain people at a certain time uh, in Britain didn't like them very much, but then what do you expect? Um, and another good example is the word heathen, because heathen basically just means not Judeo-Christian. Uh, my great-grandfather was a missionary, and if I'd known him, I could have asked him, in this sense, it makes good sense, even though we may not approve of the practice, uh, great-grandpapa, what are you doing this afternoon? And he would say, well, I'm converting some of the heathens, and that's uh, at least uh, linguistically all right. But again, we would find a scholar of comparative religion uh, at fault if uh, he or she said there are two types of religion, Judeo-Christian uh, and heathen. So I think that's uh, what's going on. Uh, deontology was defined from the point of view of teleology negatively uh, it may make sense from a certain perspective, but philosophically, ultimately, um, it isn't uh, very useful. And that's where we turn to all the different negative things that deontology may uh, be taken uh, to, to mean. So let us investigate what happens when the truth of consequentialism is denied. The denial can be applied either to all duties within a system or just to some of the things we ought to do. As a result, there are already two radically different understandings of deontology, two different ways of negating teleology, both recognizable to someone familiar with the contemporary usage. Namely, first of all, and this is the list um, at uh, the end 
at the bottom of the second page of your handout, there's first of all theories that revolve around the notion of what must or must not be done, say, a set of duties whose content is determined non-teleologically. And the secondly, theories that contain certain particularly stringent moral requirements that are not to be violated for the sake of the good they also enjoin or allow us to produce. And I call the first meaning global, so basically a system or set of duties um, founded on something other than teleology, and I call the second thesis local, namely the idea that within the duties that you have, there are some principles or some duties that enjoy lexical priority uh, compared uh, to other duties. Now, the global thesis relates to prescriptions within an ethical theory. The local thesis concerns the internal relation among a theory's moral requirements. Neither is tied to any particular epistemology or meta-ethical foundation. Moreover, neither the global nor the local thesis entails moral absolutism, often considered a defining feature of deontological theories. Now, the global thesis is not very likely to lead to absolutism at all. In fact, the most prominent example of deontology, other than Kant, perhaps, was devised for the express purpose of avoiding this, and that is, of course, W. Ross's system of prima facie duties. In the right of the good, we get a set of duties that apply uh, prima facie, and there are round about these duty types, fidelity, reparation, gratitude, non-maleficence, justice, beneficence, and self-improvement. Uh, and crucially, though these are duties, none of them is supposed to be inviolable. The result is intuitionism verging in spirit, perhaps, on particularism, not a system of relentless, inflexible, universal commands. So that's the global idea. We have a system of duties not founded on teleology, Ross uh, as a good example. Now, less obviously, there is no direct route from the local thesis that some have priority to absolutism either. A theory that contains deontological constraints, so to say, that are not to be overridden for the sake of producing value is locally absolutist only if either there's just a single side constraint or if there are several side constraints, those side constraints can be relied upon not to conflict. If you have conflicts among side constraints, of course, you need to say something about how to resolve those conflicts. And so maybe you get something like prima facie um, rules uh, to decide uh, conflicts that occur within the class of side constraints. The way this is classically done is by saying that these side constraints are negative. I and mean, that's what Kant thought. Uh, we can have negative side constraints as I can comply with all negative side constraints at the same time. There can't be conflicts. That's a bit naive. It's probably wrong, but that's the <coughs> idea. So not even the local thesis necessarily, the thesis of side constraints, gives you absolutism. So that's why we have the third um, prominent sense of deontology on our list, uh, namely that there are some types of action that are always unconditionally 
um, prohibited. Turning to the right and the good, and again there's a quotation uh, on your handout which I won't read, it's from The Theory of Justice uh, by John Rawls, because a common characterization of the teleology deontology distinction focuses on the relation between the right and the good. Teleology means the good takes precedence over the right. By contrast, deontology means the right enjoys priority over the good. This definition promises to be more useful than Frankner's evasive negative definition, but our hopes will once again be disappointed. Teleology is still used as a foil, and that's the problem. Defined as above, the notion of teleology or consequentialism makes perfect sense because the right in the case of consequentialism or teleology is just the right of instrumental reason. An action is right as a means to producing some good. The good determines the right. So what about deontology then, if we just reverse the order? Well, we get both the global thesis and the local thesis again, because it's not clear what right means in this case. Does it mean that which ought to be done generally? Then you get the global thesis, but again, you don't know what right is founded on, because the only thing you know is that it's not founded on consequences. If right is used in the sense of justice, what is right constraining what you're permitted to do for the sake of the good, you get the local thesis. Um, so once again, you get those two different ideas. Once again, you may or may not get absolutism. Uh, so I conclude that talking about deontology in terms of the right being prior to the good doesn't make much sense either, because it's just as vague. Now. Several questions are left unaddressed when we talk about deontology, and we've already encountered two issues that definitions of deontology do not address. Broad explicitly brackets moral epistemology, and these definitions do not tell us anything about what makes an action right or wrong. The one question teleology was meant to answer, namely it's the ends make actions right or wrong. Surely any meaningful classification of theories of right action should take into account what makes an action right, not privilege any particular answer by putting one type of theory in one category and all the other types of theory in the other category. But there are at least two further areas that deontology as negative or inverted teleology does not even touch. The first is the problem of motivation. As Marshall Barrow notes, two of the most prominent cases of alleged deontology differ in this regard. Kant, she says, was an internalist. In his ethics, the moral law motivates in moral judgment. An action ought to be done for the sake of the law. By contrast, Ross was an externalist. For him, there was no natural link between judgment and motivation and none was required. Now, this is a very important difference about those ethical theories. If you just say they're deontology, you're not really saying anything about that. You're just lumping them together, despite the fact that there are uh, those important differences. The second issue is the issue of the normative foundation of right action. 
it is not the same as the question of what makes an action right. Let us assume that it is um, agreement by all rational agents that makes actions right. There is then, at least according to some, still a question why this or that action agreed upon is morally obligatory. Once again, there are several options, and the character of one's theory will depend on which is preferred. That the action agreed to, uh, agreed to is to be done uh, might be a moral fact. It might be what God wants us to do, or it could be the result of a command that is ultimately self-imposed, i.e. autonomy. Calling non-teleology deontology decides none of these questions. So the question, what ultimately makes an action obligatory, is it that there's realism or there's autonomy or some divine command theory, if you just say there's teleology. In that case, of course, we do know what makes them obligatory, I suppose. And uh, deontology, in which case we don't, uh, it doesn't really help. Now, this is, so far, the main argument. Uh, and um, for the next five minutes or so, I'd just say, like to say something about um, Kant, uh, unsurprisingly, and about the question uh, in what sense, if any, Kant uh, was a deontologist, um, if the question at this stage uh, makes any sense at all. And the first thing to say is that, uh, trivially, uh, Kant was unfamiliar with the word. Um, that's no reason to think that he wasn't um, a deontologist as such, but at least it's worth noting. Kant never said, my theory is a case, is an example of deontology. But the more important reason why I think it's misleading to call Kant a deontologist is that it's just a questionable simplification which obscures the most distinctive features of his theory. As we saw above, like its teleological foil, deontology essentially concerns the notion of right and wrong action. It does not clear what determines rightness, except that it cannot be an action's consequences, but rightness is plainly the basic category of ethical assessment. Thinking about Kant in deontological terms makes us think about his ethics as a theory of right action. And I think that's precisely what's problematic, because Kant's theory is primarily a theory of good action and not uh, of right action. If you look at the groundwork or the second critique, you see that the word right doesn't really come up all that much. And the one place in Kant's works where right is a concern is the doctrine of right, the first part of the metaphysics of morals, which concerns his philosophy of law. That's where we discuss, in some sense, rightness, not um, the ethical works. And the word that comes closest in meaning to right action is, in fact, in the groundwork, action in conformity with duty, pflichtmäßig. So that's actions that, on the face of it, conform with duty, actions that are right in this sense. But, as Kant's critics never tire of pointing out, he notoriously, perhaps, says that action in conformity with duty 
really has nothing to do with morality because they are just superficially, they're just externally in accordance with duty and for an action to be morally good, and it's the principle of moral goodness that he's after, they have to be done from duty. So Kant really explicitly says that what is right and wrong in this thin sense, just doing on the face of it as you should, is ethically irrelevant because it can just as easily spring from the wrong kind of motive. An action must be done from or for the sake of duty uh, to be morally good, and it is this self-contained goodness of moral action that Kant is trying to understand in section one. He's not interested in right action because the groundwork is an exercise in the analysis of good willing, first sentence, that is good maxims or good character. It turns out that for finite beings like us, the principle of the goodwill is the categorical imperative. So the categorical imperative is the principle of goodwilling, not the principle of right action. However, Kant's theory appears to be a case of the local thesis on account of the primacy of perfect duty within ethics. If only we concede that perfect duties themselves do not um, conflict. So I think in this sense, in this very specialized sense, yes, there's a hint of deontology because Kant has two classes of duties in the groundwork, imperfect duties like beneficence and improving your talents and perfect duty such as don't throw away your life and don't make false promises. And he does think that the perfect variety of duty takes precedence and you must not, under any circumstances, violate perfect duty for the sake of imperfect duty or for any other purpose, really. And as mentioned previously, he can say these things only because he believes that perfect duties are negative, uh, which was a common idea at the time, and negative duties can be complied with simultaneously. So you get a pretty clear case of the primacy of, in inverted commas, deontological constraints uh, within uh, the system of um, duties. Now, on closer inspection, there is the case that when one type of duty limits another type of duty, again, it's not just about right action because it's one type of moral goodness, namely the moral goodness of good action according to perfect duty, restricts the field of another type of moral goodness, namely of good action according to imperfect duty and the positive moral worth of the agent. And then, under certain circumstances, you produce a third type of goodness, which is the non-moral type of goodness, for example, the merited happiness of a beneficiary. So, once again, it's not about right action, it's about good action. There's good action in accordance with perfect duty, which takes precedence. There's good action within those limits of imperfect duty, uh, which is something you have to do once those other duties have been taken care of. And then, when you act, for example, to help someone, there's a third kind of goodness that's created, um, namely, if merited, the happiness of the person you help. But, crucially, and again, you might say this is kind of deontological, you shouldn't help other people because of the result. 
you do not help other people because happiness is a good thing. It may or may not be, depending on whether it's merited, but rather you help other people as a good person because the moral law requires it. Now, moving on to yet another sense, perhaps, or something that reminds people of deontology when they read Kant, and that is the idea that it's the moral law that determines goodness. And you might say, well, as you have the moral law that's primary and goodness that's secondary, this is a kind of deontology, and maybe in some sense it is, but that idea overlooks the very important fact that for Kant, it's always the case that if something is good, it is determined by a law or it's determined by reason. Goodness means objectively good. So whenever something is good, it is good because of some law. If something's a good means to some other thing, that's because there's a law. And anything that is just subjective can't be good because Kant thinks that if you say this is good, it commands, in principle, universal agreement. So if people disagree, say, about um, whether there's some subjectively good state, uh, Kant would say, well, that's pleasant, uh, but it isn't good. He comes very close to formulating an open question argument um, about this. So it's true that uh, the law is primary. It's the law that determines goodness. But that is, this isn't even a thesis specifically about ethics. It's a general thesis about any kind of goodness because goodness uh, has those extremely strong objectivist connotations of good is what is approved impartially um, by reason. Finally, leaving Kant behind, the question is, um, what's left of uh, deontology? Can deontology and its cognates be put to any good use at all, or should we expunge these words from our philosophical vocabulary? And I think uh, the second option may well be preferable. So I think we should just stop using the word deontology uh, altogether. We sh certainly shouldn't tell first-year undergraduates anything about deontology because they write it down. They think they've learned something when, in fact, um, they haven't. It means really, if it means anything at all, just non-consequentialist. But if you want to say non-consequentialist or non-teleological, just say non-consequentialist or non-teleological. Don't use a word that may seem to suggest there's some kind of unity among non-consequentialist or non-teleological theories that really uh, there isn't. So the textbook dichotomy between two types of ethical theory must also be discarded because it lumps together widely different theories. Uh, it excludes mixed theories that Broad was still pretty keen on. And I don't think really introducing a third category like virtue ethics helps. If anything, it makes uh, things worse because if you say teleology, non-teleology, that's at least fairly uh, neat and tidy. If you say teleology, non-teleology, and virtue ethics, that seems uh, pretty uh, messy to me. And it also obscures the fact that certainly Kant and Aristotle have some things in common, namely that they primarily talk about character and not about right action. And in fact, if you talk about deontology in terms of non-teleology, maybe even Aristotle uh, was uh, a deontologist because in the absolutist sense, he seems to suggest uh, 
that some actions, adultery, theft, or murder, are always unconditionally uh, to be avoided by the virtuous agent. He doesn't quite say that. He just says the doctrine of the mean doesn't apply to um, adultery, theft, or murder. But I think it's arguably true that Aristotle would have said a virtuous person does not, under any circumstances, engage in those um, acts uh, like adultery, theft, or murder. Now, two possibilities, uh, I think, remain if we want to retain the word in some shape or form. And the first is just return to Bentham's meaning, the original meaning of a system um, of duties or a doctrine of duties. But then I suspect that we do not share the 19th century taste uh, for Grecisms. We do not need the word deontology to mean a system or doctrine uh, of duties. And finally, I think the only respectable way of using the word deontology might be to refer to a specific phenomenon in the history of moral philosophy to a group that is of British ethicists who in the early 20th century sought to, sought to distance themselves from teleological theories, particularly the ideal utilitarianism of G.E. Moore. That seems to me is a much more attractive option, so we just say there was some deontology in the early mid 20th century uh, in Britain. But of course, if that's deontology, Kant is no longer a deontologist. And that's fine by me. Thank you very much. <laughs>